Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. A big storm had blown in, and the sky was filled with dark clouds in all directions. As he rode past the archway, he noticed the sky through its opening was blue. No clouds were visible. Dismounting, he walked cautiously toward the formation and peered through. The mountains on the other side hadn't changed, but the sky was clear. Looking around the corner of the structure, the sky was once again covered with dark clouds. Fear gripped him, and he rode off. Some believe John was looking into another time period through the portal. I'm Darren Marlar. And this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is a Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you're new here, welcome to the show, and if you're already a member of this weirdo family, please take a moment and invite someone else to listen. Recommending Weird Darkness to others helps make it possible for me to keep doing the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com, where you can find the daily podcast and all social media that I'm on, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, MeWe, and others, along with the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group. Now, Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. About 30 years ago, a friend of a friend's sister was getting married, and I somehow found myself invited to the stag. I'd never been to the house before, and as we waited for the groom to arrive, the bride's mother insisted we have a cup of tea. We sat chatting about nothing in particular when out of the corner of my eye I became aware of a young boy, perhaps seven or eight, dressed in a sailor suit, go into the kitchen, and thought nothing of it. As we sat, the boy came out of the kitchen and stood very politely beside my chair. I turned and said, Hello, what is your name? He very politely introduced himself as James, then chattered away for a couple of minutes about school, games, and the cat before announcing that he was going upstairs. Half an hour later, as we were leaving, I shouted up the stairs, Bye-bye, James! Our host looked startled and asked, who James was. Turned out there were no children in the house, let alone one wearing a sailor suit. I never went back. When I first moved into the old house eight years ago, 
I was single and happy to score such a roomy place for such cheap rent. The owners were a lovely Japanese couple I had known for a long time. They were getting old and wanted to move to a newer, more convenient apartment that they could more easily manage. Since they knew me, they offered their big two-story house for relatively cheap rent, no traditional key money payment, and no need of a damage deposit. They trusted that I would take pretty good care of the place. And it was a great place to live. At first. The owners had gone against the usual Japanese conventional understated style and had painted the outside a verdant green, which made it easy to spot on the street. Inside, I had two floors with eight rooms, four bedrooms, large bath and kitchen, and it even had a full-sized classroom attached where the owner's wife had taught traditional Japanese calligraphy to schoolchildren. The house was a great place to hold dinner parties with friends, and the band I was playing with could practice there if we went mostly acoustic and didn't play too loud. It was a nice private place to bring girls, and, most of all, it fulfilled my Midwest American need for space. Then, something that was sharing the space with me began to make its presence known. One expects an older house, made of wood, to mutter and groan as it warps and settles, but some noises began to be heard that didn't match the description of the usual old house sounds. One floorboard next to the bed would creak incessantly, as if someone were standing on it and pushing it non-stop with a heavy foot. Several times I would be awakened from sleep by a loud thwap on my pillow next to my head, as if someone were saying, wake up and notice me. Soon my pillow was getting thumped so often I would simply shout out, what do you want? I'm tired. Let me sleep. And then I would roll over and ignore it. One night I heard the beating of a large set of wings flying through the dark overhead, and I felt the rush of wind as they passed just above my face. I turned on the light expecting to see a bird, maybe an owl or a bat that had somehow gotten into the house, but there was nothing there. Many times I felt myself touched, my head, hair, or arms stroked with what definitely felt like a feminine touch. I had experienced ghostly happenings before, so I just accepted what was going on and went on about my business. Then I met my lovely wife, Tuesday in the Philippines, married her, and brought her to Japan to live with me in the big green house, and the weird happenings began to escalate almost immediately. The first month she lived there, my wife would have frightening nightmares every night that she slept in the bedroom. When she fell asleep in the living room, they wouldn't happen. She began to be afraid of even going into the bedroom alone. One lazy Sunday, my wife Tuesday and I both fell asleep in the bedroom, drowsing side by side on the bed. All of a sudden my eyes snapped open and I found myself wide awake as if awakened by an alarm, my body tense as if to ward off an attack. I looked up to see a woman standing above my wife Tuesday as she slept, crouching low over her with a gentle smile on her face. She was Asian-looking, perhaps in her early thirties. She had long black hair and was wearing a red dress with black designs on the blouse and skirt. 
Tuesday began to shout out in her sleep as another nightmare hit her, and the woman bent lower as if to touch Tuesday or caress her. Something about the slow, silent way she moved made me very uncomfortable. What do you want? I shouted, and she looked up, smiled at me, and faded away from sight. Tuesday remained asleep, but her face was peaceful now, as the nightmare seemed to have gone away with the woman in the red dress. The next day, I led Tuesday into the bedroom and attempted to talk to the ghost lady. Listen, I said to the empty half of the room where I had seen her before. We are living here now. I don't know who you are or what you want, but we would like to live here peacefully and in comfort. We expect that you want the same. Please, let us live here peacefully. Don't bother us and we won't bother you." After that, the nightmares stopped for a time, and Tuesday was able to sleep undisturbed in the bedroom. In the following two and a half years that we stayed in the greenhouse, we experienced many more strange encounters, not only with the lady, but with what seemed to be other presences as well. It would take too long to write about all of them, but I will list the most impressive ones here. One day, as I was lying on the sofa in the living room, I looked up to see a woman with long black hair walking away from me into the bedroom. Thinking it was Tuesday, I began talking to her as she disappeared into the room. Then, through another door leading to the kitchen came Tuesday, asking, Who are you talking to? Coming home one evening after work in a taxi, I looked up as the cab pulled up in front of our house. I saw a woman entering the gate to our house and assumed it was Tuesday. I paid the cab driver and rushed forward to greet my wife, only to find the gate closed, the front door locked, and no one there. For a while, the floorboard next to the bed continued to squeak and groan without stop all night long, as if someone were standing on it and kicking it with a shoe. After a few months, it stopped. We began to hear the sound of someone moving around upstairs when there was no one there, the sound of walking and furniture being moved. The board and the ceiling above the dining table in the living room then began to squeak incessantly as if someone were upstairs jumping on it. For a period of about two months, we began to experience what we called the midnight party in our living room. During that time, on an almost nightly basis, at exactly 12.30 a.m., two of the chairs facing each other at the dining table would begin to move and squeak, as if two people were sitting in them across the table from each other. Each time, the squeaking would last for exactly half an hour and then stop. As I have mentioned before, I have experienced ghostly happenings on many occasions without feeling particularly threatened, but something about the midnight party frightened me very badly. At first, I would walk right up to the chairs as they moved and stare at them, attempting to see anything that might explain what was happening, but I couldn't bring myself to touch them to make them stop. I felt a cold chill run through my body, my hair stood up on end, and I had to leave the room. After reoccurring every night for about two months, the midnight party suddenly stopped happening and the chairs never moved again. My wife Tuesday was relaxing on the living room sofa when she suddenly found herself unable to move, 
She then felt a pair of hands running up and down her leg, steadily stroking it with soft fingers. She tried to move to make the hands stop touching her, but in classic Kanishibari style, she struggled to get free but could not. Finally, she screamed at the top of her voice. The hands went away and she was free to move. I was sitting across the room at the time and was startled by her screaming. I asked her what was wrong and she told me what had happened. In what may or may not be a related incident, shortly afterwards she developed a blood clot or deep vein thrombosis in that leg. Thrombosis is an old person's disease, very rare in someone of the age of 28 as she was then. It required many trips to the hospital, intense medication, and made it difficult for her to walk or work for the next six months. She is sure the two incidents are connected. I am not so sure. Tuesday had a particularly frightening dream in which she saw a woman standing across the street looking at her through the window. I'm not leaving, the woman shouted. I'm here to stay. She moved closer until she was looking directly in the window at Tuesday. I'm here to stay, she shouted again. We were eating dinner together, my wife Tuesday, our daughter and I, when suddenly the cap off an almost empty bottle of ketchup popped straight up in the air and flew across the room. Our daughter, being so young, laughed because she thought it was funny. For her sake, we laughed too. But I could see the uneasy look in Tuesday's eyes. Dr. John D. looked every bit like a wizard. By the end of his life, he had a flowing white beard and wore a skullcap over his thinning hair. He probably would not have looked out of place at Hogwarts. Edward Kelly, his sidekick, was an altogether different sort of character. He was a necromancer, a confidence trickster, and a commoner who used his ability to talk his way into money and power. One died an old man, living out his final years in relative obscurity back in England, while the other died a violent death, falling from a high window while making an escape attempt from Prague Jail. During his wanderings across Europe, Dee met many famed people, including Cornelius Agrippa, another very famous magician. Agrippa and Dee investigated natural magic and telepathy together. Queen Mary of England invited Dee, whose fame as an astrologer had spread widely, to cast a horoscope for her forthcoming marriage. Mary's sister Elizabeth was imprisoned at that time and Dee also drew her a horoscope. The two became friends. Once again, Dee was in hot water, though, as he was accused of trying to murder Queen Mary using black magic. He was eventually acquitted and when Elizabeth was crowned, she invited him back to her court. In the years that followed, Dee and his wife started to have strange dreams about contacting spirits. As a result of this, and his general interest in the esoteric, he tried using a magic mirror and other scrying instruments to attempt contact with the spirits. However, Dee was forced to conclude that he wasn't that good at scrying, and so he hired others to do it for him while he took notes of the communication. 
This was how he met Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly was a rogue who had already had his ears clipped as punishment for some crime that he had committed. He was a conman and a trickster, but he too had an interest in magic and the occult, and he's reputed to have engaged in necromancy and to have raised the freshly dead body of a young woman, reanimated it using black magic, and then questioned it about the whereabouts of a small fortune. Dee was probably aware of his new colleague's reputation, and so he made Kelly promise not to work with evil spirits. After meeting a Polish nobleman at Elizabeth's court, the pair was invited to Poland, where the nobleman funded their continued experimentation with spirit communication, as well as the far more potentially profitable venture of alchemy. Rumors abounded of Dee and Kelly turning various base metals into gold using a mysterious red powder they had developed, but in fact, these may have just been rumors, as after two years, the Polish nobleman went broke supporting the pair. From there, they went to Prague and the court of Rudolf, who at the time had gathered a host of famous alchemists and magicians. However, they were accused of sorcery again by the Pope and had to leave Prague, eventually settling in Trebon, in what is now the Czech Republic, yet again supported by a rich nobleman. It is here that a truly bizarre event took place. Kelly claimed that the spirit Madimi had instructed Dee and Kelly to share their wives with each other. Dee was married to a much younger and almost certainly attractive woman, and one has to believe that Kelly, the con man, saw his opportunity. Initially, Dee and his wife refused, and the pair went their separate ways. However, Dee must have agreed in the end, as a document was signed by all four, swearing to carry out all the commands of the angels. This event must have been deeply traumatic, and one wonders if Dee didn't begin to suspect Kelly of manipulation, as, not surprisingly, their relationship soured. Dee and his wife returned home to England where Elizabeth I gave him the wardenship of Christ's College Manchester, and he eventually died peacefully at age 81. As for Kelly, he was killed, making an escape bid from a Prague prison, where it seems his luck had finally run out. OnlyInYourState.com just featured an interesting article that chilled our team to the bone. The story of an old sanitarium located at the top of a hill that is the second highest point in Dane County, Wisconsin. The old Lakeview Sanitarium. Constructed in 1930 as a tuberculosis sanatorium and general hospital for Dane County, it looks a bit like a sprawling Art Deco mansion, if you don't really know any better. Out of use for that purpose since 1966, this area has come to be known for its strange happenings. Surrounded by woods, it seems no one in the Madison area is without a spooky story to share about Sanitarium Hill. In daylight, the sanitarium can be deceiving and reading about its origins makes it sound like a lovely place. Isolated from the general public, but in fresh air, it was home to up to 100 tuberculosis patients at a time. 
Now the building is home to the Dane County Department of Health and Human Services, and the hill out front is known as one of the best sledding hills in town. Maybe it's because it is still in use, but folks say it's not the building that's haunted, but the woods behind it where you'll find paranormal activity. Before the sanitarium was built there, the spot overlooking the lake would have been considered sacred to the Native Americans who lived in the area. So the people who feel unhappy vibes and displaced spirits might be connecting with those who passed long before the sanitarium was there. If the city did indeed build on an ancient burial ground, the activity here could go back for centuries. There's a cemetery that abuts the woods where people report cold spots, unexplained mists, and general unease or feeling as though they're being watched. But it's actually the woods themselves that seem to be the center of possibly nefarious acts that have led to paranormal activity. There are stories that say the giant smokestacks attached to the building were actually the outlets of a crematorium where the bodies of deceased patients were burned. A large depression in the ground near the smokestacks is said to be an actual underground tunnel where sanitarium workers moved the bodies and sometimes stored them. It is said they couldn't burn too many bodies without drawing notice. They were also concerned with putting too much smoke in the air and affecting the patients who were still alive at the sanitarium. People who have walked through here report hearing voices, and some say they have captured recordings. There are also feelings of being stalked, hair being pulled and other unexplained occurrences. There is an abandoned building that used to be a nurse's headquarters that abuts the side of the building that's still in use. Though many windows are missing, there are often lights left on and red-lit exit signs that add to the eerie feeling of the building. Visitors report an apparition at the door to this building. If you want to find out where I'm going to be headed in the weeks and months to come, you're going to want to keep a close eye on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com. For example, May 27th through the 29th, I'm taking the Weird Darkness table to the UFO Disclosure Symposium in Vernal, Utah. June 26th, I'll be just outside of Chicago in Summit, Illinois for the Chicago Paranormal Conference. August 19th and 20th, I'm heading to Champaign, Illinois for the Dark Horror in History Con. September 23rd through the 25th, I'm making my way to Kansas City to hang out with Jared Padalecki, Jensen Ackles, and the rest of the Supernatural TV show cast at the Supernatural Fan Convention. October 14th, it's the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm adding more dates all the time. The calendar just keeps getting updated, so find the details for these dates and others that are coming up on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com, and I'll see you somewhere along the haunted highways. This took place when we lived in San Jose. It was 1988 and I was living at home with my parents. Both of them worked, so I spent a lot of time at home. This took place during the summer. I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth, I was nowhere near the sink, and it actually turned on by itself and turned off again, just like that. I got my toothbrush, looked in the mirror, 
and saw nothing. I looked again and saw a white glare in the mirror that was behind me. I turned around and nothing was there. No one was home with me. Later that night, when I had to go to bed, I was restless and kept thinking about the bathroom incident. It was so strange and really freaked me out. I put the blanket over my head, but my feet were sticking out and I felt as if someone was in the room with me. I could just feel someone looming over me. I felt someone was grabbing my toes gently. I was too scared to look. I couldn't move. It felt like I was paralyzed. I could feel someone on the bed with me. I was so scared, it felt like someone was on top of me. I tried to scream, but it was holding my throat. I was still under my blankets. It was still on me. I kept trying to scream, but I could not. I also heard footsteps in my room. It finally stopped. It left. This only happened once, but it was enough to make me a believer in all things paranormal. I asked my parents if anything strange happened to them. Nothing had. I didn't give them any details about this incident. But I am sure it happened. treasure hunters who visited a canyon hidden deep in southeastern Arizona near the Mexican border say that they saw strange lights in the sky and stones falling from the heavens. Most intriguing about their story is that they encountered a mysterious stone archway that can alter time at random. Is it a time portal hidden in the Arizona mountains? The following story was reported by treasure hunter Ron Quinn, who, together with his friends, visited the mysterious canyon. They insist the story is true. This fascinating journey into the unknown began in early 1956 and still remains an unsolved mystery today. It all began during a two-year adventure into southern Arizona in search of lost mines and hidden Spanish treasures. High among the rugged terrain bordering Mexico, my brother Chuck and I discovered a location where time itself is altered. This natural freak of nature lies deep within a region seldom visited by modern man. The reason I'm bringing this tale to light after all this time is because something in the works might affect this interesting place. Tucson Electric Power Company plans on building a 345,000-watt high-voltage transmission line from Tucson to Nogales the line could come quite close to this site. When this line becomes active, what, if anything, will this enormous voltage do to this delicate location? Enhance the natural energy already lurking within it, or nothing? Only time will tell. The following stories all took place around this mysterious location. This all began after my release from the military. My brother Chuck asked if I'd be interested in taking an extended trip to Arizona to search for several of the legendary lost treasures allegedly hidden during the Spanish occupation. This ignited my adventurous spirit, so plans were made. We saved enough capital with the help of our parents for two years. I was 23, Chuck was 26. 
We left Tacoma, Washington on March 20, 1956. Our final destination was Aravesa, Arizona, a small desert hamlet of perhaps 70 residents. This old adobe village was located squarely in the center of the country harboring some of these well-known hidden treasures. About three weeks into this treasure game, Chuck and I were relaxing at camp one evening. Towards the south, the craggy peaks of the Tumacacori Mountains were silhouetted against the darkening sky. Our attention was directed towards two large balls of blue-green lights slowly descending behind the mountains several miles away. They were not flares, as no sound of aircraft broke the silence of the night, and both vanished within minutes. The following night, at precisely the same time, 8.05 p.m., the lights appeared once again near the identical location. These also disappeared behind the peaks. Several days later, Louis Romero, a local cowboy who rode for the Aravesa Ranch, stopped by. Over several weeks, we became friends and learned a great deal of the history about the area from him. While in Aravesa, we heard from the locals that if Louis tells you something, you can bet your life it's the truth. During one of his weekly visits, Louis told us many stories centering around the nearby mountains. Several bordered on the paranormal. After describing the odd lights we had seen, he smiled, saying he and others have spotted them since 1939 in the same location. Over the months, we saw them several more times. One day, as we were returning to Aravesa, we spotted an old truck parked beside the road with a flat tire. Not having a spare, the gentleman stood beside his vehicle trying to hitch a ride to the nearest service station. We picked him up and soon arrived at the Kinsley Ranch and gas station. After having the tire repaired, we returned John, an Indian, to his truck where we mounted the tire for him. John couldn't thank us enough, as not many white men had shown him such kindness. A month or so later, at camp, we spotted a rider approaching and were surprised to see that it was John. He told us that he was working temporarily for a local ranch, checking the fence lines. While talking in general about the surrounding country, Chuck mentioned we were treasure hunting. As a boy, John said he had heard many of the tales of lost mission gold and silver. He also believed some of the tales were true, as treasure was found in 1907 near Nogales. Later, John told us about a mysterious stone archway. Roy told him we came across such a formation south of camp. John's first words were, did you walk through its opening? Walt answered, no. We noticed it while descending a slope, but paid little attention to the oddity. John told us around the 1800s three Indians were hunting and, upon returning to their village, discovered a stone archway. Being in a jubilant mood, they began chasing one another through the opening in a playful manner. Moments later, one jumped through but never emerged from the opposite side. Fearing they had entered some sacred ground of the gods, the remaining two fled the scene. Arriving at the village, they told the medicine man how their friend had vanished before their eyes. As the story spread, others journeyed to the high plateau to gaze upon the stone structure. Rocks and other items were tossed through, but nothing occurred until an elderly woman approached. Tossing in a live rabbit, it suddenly vanished. 
The Indians backed off in fear and spread the story of this doorway to the gods as it came to be known. John himself had been to the site on many occasions. The only time he witnessed anything strange was around 1948. A big storm had blown in and the sky was filled with dark clouds in all directions. As he rode past the archway, he noticed the sky through its opening was blue. No clouds were visible. Dismounting, he walked cautiously toward the formation and peered through. The mountains on the other side hadn't changed, but the sky was clear. Looking around the corner of the structure, the sky was once again covered with dark clouds. Fear gripped him, and he rode off. Some believe John was looking into another time period through the portal. We asked John if the story was indeed true, why hadn't it been investigated? He replied that only his people knew of the story, as it had never been mentioned outside the tribe. The only reason he told us is because we had shown him kindness while he was stranded beside the highway. Curious, we decided to make another trip to the remote site with Roy Purdy and Walter Fisher, two fellow treasure hunters who were camping with us. It's a rugged climb, and the torturous craggy mountains play no favorites. Enter their domain, make an error, and you'll be added to the list of the injured and missing. This mysterious area is covered with windswept rock formations that dot the landscape. Searching further, we discovered an enormous deposit of geodes. The ground was littered with them. Some had broken open, revealing their crystal-lined interiors. As we approached the archway, the structure took on a menacing appearance. It stood beside a rocky slope and was perhaps seven feet high by five feet in width. Its columns measured approximately 15 inches in diameter and were made of andesite. Chuck jokingly tossed several rocks through, but nothing happened. Next, I placed my arm in. Roy, the superstitious member of our foursome, said I was flirting with danger if the story was true. Knowing his nature toward the unknown, I decided to play a joke. I suddenly yelled like something was pulling me through. Jumping back, I began laughing as Roy cussed me out. By now, we were all close friends, so no offense was taken. After several hours, we departed this interesting location, carrying a number of geodes. I remember glancing back at this lonely part of the world, wondering if there was truly something within the area that could alter time at random. Was it just the archway itself, or were other unknown natural forces at play? We would definitely discover the answer, at least to the time-altering question. It was roundup time on the Aravesa Ranch. That evening, Louie and several others were camping beside the coral just north of the mountains to get an early start the following morning. As they sat around having coffee and making small talk, Louie noticed how still the night was. Most evenings, one could hear the night sounds of the desert, but this time it was unusually quiet and the livestock seemed restless. As they were about to bed down, they suddenly heard the rumbling of approaching horses. As the sound grew closer, one could hear the clattering of hoofs among the rocks accompanied by the whinnying of many horses. As the sound increased, the boys dove for cover, expecting to see a herd of horses stampeding through camp. But as the rumbling reached the opposite side of a nearby canyon, it abruptly ended. The following morning they searched, 
but found no evidence of horses. Louis mentioned wild horses once roamed the country around the turn of the century. Were Louis and the others caught on the outer edge of some time change? It turns out they were near our mysterious archway. Before continuing, I'd like to set forth a theory told to us by a party well-versed in the field of the strange and paranormal. Perhaps an enormous deposit of geodes beneath the surface might be affecting time in some mysterious manner, when all the natural elements, the vibration of the crystals, the electricity in the atmosphere, and the magnetic fields in the Earth come together at the precise moment, laws of nature are turned topsy-turvy and things occur beyond our understanding. It could be like dropping a stone into a pool of calm water, the archway being the stone and the waves expanding outward could be the natural forces. These might reach anywhere from several yards to a mile. Depending upon the activation, everything within this radiating circle could be thrown into a different period of time. When it fades, things return to normal. This story was told by a reliable rancher and also took place within the shadows of the puzzling archway. It involves the appearance of a Spanish padre long since dead, a ghost, or perhaps not. Several hundred years earlier, a Jesuit priest, whose name has long since been forgotten, built a small mission east of Aravesa. The residents gave their most treasured possessions to him for safekeeping, as they feared robbery. These were hidden somewhere near the church grounds. One morning, a Mexican woodchopper found the elderly padre dead. After he was put to rest, the villagers suddenly realized he was the only one who knew the location of their valuables. They searched, but nothing was ever found. Over the years, many cowboys and others have reported seeing a dark-robed figure walking near the site of the old mission, which has long since crumbled back into the dry earth. The description given resembles that of a Spanish padre. One rancher told us quite frankly, Nobody will ever convince me otherwise. I know what I saw that afternoon. The figure wasn't any ghost. It walked across a wash, disturbing the gravel and casting a long shadow. The figure slowly became transparent, shimmered several times, then vanished. Again, was the witness caught in another trick of time produced by the sight? Or was he himself back in the 18th century, watching the Padre going about his daily rounds? Too bad our rancher didn't see the mission. That would be hard evidence that he wasn't in his own time. Another mind-boggling story involves two cowboys out searching for a sick bull. Both separated and rode off in different directions. One rider paused atop a hill searching the country below with his binoculars. Suddenly, he felt a stone bounce off his hat. Turning, he expected to find his companion had tossed it jokingly, but nobody was there. Another stone hit his arm, but once again, nothing was seen. While scanning the terrain again, he spotted his friend several hundred yards below. In the distance, he saw the bull. Waving, he shouted to his partner, signaling him which direction to go. While descending the hill, he spotted a group of six riders traveling eastward. They rode in single file and were about a half mile off. Stopping, he looked through his field glasses and was amazed at what he saw. His description of the horsemen resembled pictures he had seen of Spanish soldiers with tunics, lances, and helmets. He followed their movements until the scene shimmered and faded. 
Once again, this occurred near the Archway's realm. A column of soldiers traveling east? The only fort in that direction was the Presidio, located at Tubac during the Spanish occupation. During the mid-1940s, Louis and another ranch hand came upon the skeletal remains of what appeared to be that of an ancient Indian. Beside the body was a rotted bow. The Indian's clothing was of animal skins and a leather moccasin clung to one foot. The skull and one leg were missing. Could this have been the Indian who vanished so long ago? The body was discovered less than a mile south of our strange location. They buried the remains nearby, marking the grave with several large rocks. Louis noted that the body did not resemble 200-year-old remains. Before hearing this tale, I often wondered what became of the Indian allegedly swallowed by the archway. If the portal was visible from the opposite side, why didn't he come back through? He might have never noticed a change and to him his friends had disappeared. Not finding them, he eventually returned to his village and perhaps also found it missing. Perhaps he was somehow transported forward in time and for some unknown reason died on that lonely hillside only to be found by Louis years later. One day, Walt and Roy had their own weird experience near the stone portal. They returned there because Walt wanted to collect some geodes for friends in Tucson. Looking toward the archway, both saw it appear to shimmer. According to Walt, this lasted several minutes before it slowly faded. During this period, both felt a strange pressure within their ears. Roy said, that's it, Walt, I'm out of here. After gathering a number of geodes, both left with Roy leading the way, rather fast. During the summer months, temperatures can reach 110 degrees. The heat waves dancing off a flat surface can make objects appear to shimmer while looking through them, but this was mid-January and the temperature was around 60 or so. Old Roy would never again return to the site, no matter how we tried to persuade him. Was the shimmering and ear sensation the beginning of some activation that never reached its full potential? Seeing the expression on Roy's face after he returned to camp? Take my word, it happened. A number of individuals have disappeared from the unfriendly rugged hills over the years. Did some make the unfortunate mistake of entering the portal at the wrong time? The following suggests that possibility. While the four of us were checking out an old silver workings, we came upon a deserted miner's camp that Louie had told us about weeks earlier. Everything was left behind – rotted clothing, tools, drill steel, old blankets, and cooking utensils. Everything was there to maintain a functional camp. By the looks of several items, I'd say the site was active during the 1930s. It looked as though somebody just walked away and never returned – or couldn't. The camp was almost a mile from the bizarre site high above. Did this party fall victim to it, or did he become discouraged with mining and abandoned camp? I find this highly unlikely. We also heard a story about a lone prospector who arrived each October and remained until spring. This continued for several years. One day, he vanished, leaving his horse, wagon, and camp behind. It was located near a saddle in the mountains, just north of you-know-what. A body was never found. We visited this site and found a deep shaft nearby with numerous open cuts on a hill. Was he prospecting or treasure hunting? 
it was rumored that some bandits' loot, two bags of gold coins, was buried within this area. Stories like this keep people like us searching. Another close encounter occurred about 14 months into our treasure game, a game that seemed to be going nowhere. While in Aravesa picking up needed supplies, we met three other treasure hunters. They were in the area for a month, seeking the famous lost treasure of Coretta Canyon, hidden by the fleeing Padres from the Tumacacori mission during the Great Pima Uprising of 1751. We invited them to stop by camp and gave them directions. Several weeks later, they arrived and had an interesting story to tell. By chance, while traveling overland, they camped near the mouth of the canyon leading to the strange area. We discovered this when one pointed to the campsite on his map. While relaxing one evening after a long, tiring search for this elusive treasure, they heard a sound like rain hitting the tent. Stepping outside, they saw the sky was clear. All at once, a shower of hundreds of small stones came cascading down around them. Most were the size of a large pea, were reddish-brown, and resembled hematite and iron ore. Picking several up, they noticed they were quite warm to the touch. Their camp wasn't located near any high cliffs where the stones could have originated. George, a member of the group, jokingly said, perhaps we're camping on some ancient Indian burial ground and the spirits want us to leave. He'd read an article about an incident similar to this occurring on a burial ground somewhere in the Midwest. By now, one has to admit something quite out of the ordinary encircles this strange sight. I won't definitely say their encounter with the warm stones had anything to do with our odd out-of-time region. Indian spirits or not, something weird occurred while they sat relaxing in their tent. After our two-year adventure ended without finding buried gold or lost mines, we returned to Washington State for almost a year. We then moved to Arizona, making Tucson our home. Most of our adult lives have been one long adventure after the other. If Roy and Walt arrived at our door with some wild treasure lead, we'd be off with them the next day. To live such a lifestyle, we all remained single. We were one big, happy family of devil-may-care adventurers. The strange experience I had occurred on October 14, 1973. During one of our two-week adventures, I found myself near the canyon that leads towards that oddball site. Not having been there in almost four years, I decided to pay it a visit. The canyon was just as rugged as ever. After climbing and slipping among the boulders, I finally arrived at the steep hill leading to the site above. It's a long, weary climb, so I paused for a breather halfway up. I sat on the slope facing north. To my left, the west, the steep hill followed the canyon perhaps a mile, but something was definitely wrong. Below to my left was a canyon where none had existed. Curious, I made my way down, entering it from the east side, so I thought. I soon discovered I was in the same canyon that led toward the hill I had just scaled. I was more than 250 yards back down the canyon on a different slope, and now I was facing south. I had mysteriously been transported to the new location. Thinking I was looking west, I was really looking east, seeing the canyon I had just hiked. There was no way on earth I could have reached this other slope 
while climbing the original hill. Knowing where I was, suddenly I knew why this had happened. Any skepticism I had about this crazy sight vanished. I was apprehensive about continuing and should have departed the area immediately, but curiosity led me on. I made the grueling climb once again, passing the spot where, minutes before, I had been resting. There are very few among those with a love for the supernatural who don't also have a passion for Edgar Allan Poe. Poe wasn't simply a melancholy author who wrote about premature burials, sinister black cats, and talking ravens. He was much more. If you've ever read a modern mystery or horror novel, you can thank Poe. Poe invented the modern mystery story, mostly invented science fiction, and was the first writer to take the horror stories of the Gothic era and set them in modern times, starting a trend that continues today. With a lifelong interest in Poe, Troy Taylor decided to take his own look at the mysterious and macabre writer, his tragic life, unexplained death, and lingering hauntings. He invites listeners along to delve into the strange and bizarre world of Edgar Allan Poe, from his early life to his tragic marriage, his insane grief, his dramatically failed career, his links to an unsolved murder and the mystery of what happened to the writer in the five days before his unexplained death. Even more than a century and a half later, no one knows what happened to Poe before he was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore, Maryland, or what killed him. Why did he disappear and then show up in an incoherent state, wearing another man's clothes? Where did he go when he vanished and who was the mysterious Reynolds that Poe whispered about in his dying breath? And perhaps strangest of all, does he haunt the mysterious graveyard where his body is buried? Nevermore, The Haunted Life and Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe, written by Troy Taylor, narrated by Darren Marlar. Find a link to the book on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Around 2012, my husband and I moved into our very first apartment as newlyweds. I was super excited because it was in the perfect location, the perfect price, and my college buddy would live on the third floor, which was just above us. The apartment was bright, well-kept, and very clean, nothing out of the ordinary. I can't remember exactly when the weirdness started, but if I had to guess, I'd say probably about a year into our lease, things started to happen. My husband at the time was in the military, so he would be gone for weeks at a time, and I wasn't afraid to be by myself. Several nights a week, when I would be laying in bed, the most overwhelming sensation would creep over me that I wasn't alone. Not at all. It got to the point that I would have to gather the courage to turn out the lights and then I would bundle up under the covers like a little girl scared of the dark. I knew it was silly, but I always felt like if I peeked out from under the blanket, I would see someone standing there watching me. This feeling went on for months, almost every night. If I had to get up to pee during the night, I would get this sense of dread in all places, the bathroom. 
It was connected to the bedroom, and I would race back to the bed and bury my head under the covers. I told my husband about it, but there really wasn't much he could do. He kind of brushed it off, understandably. If at night I would get up to get water from the kitchen, if I didn't turn on all the lights, I would run back to bed, lest I turn around and see something behind me. I felt stalked in my own home. This thing had no sense of personal space whatsoever. Soon, my husband started to feel watched at night as well. Then other things started to happen. One day I called my husband to see when he would be released from duty, and he said maybe in a couple of hours. I went about my business, folding clothes. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a man, tall and slender like my husband, standing in the doorway. I turned and started to greet him when I realized nobody was standing there, and I had just spoken with my husband. This awful feeling crept over me, and I was so scared I threw myself up against the wall and started screaming, If you're not from God, go away! I was terrified. Another time, a friend stayed the night and slept on the sofa. A few weeks later, they confessed that they got up to get water from the faucet and they saw someone about four feet tall run down the hallway. Another time, I woke up one morning to hear someone dragging their feet down the hallway and I shouted, Who's there? Nobody responded, but the sound got closer and closer. And then I saw the edge of my bed indent like someone sat down. I screamed and it stopped. I told my husband and he was convinced I was dreaming, but I knew I wasn't. Another morning I woke up to see a tall, dark figure in a reddish cape or hood disappear into the floor. At this point I was so used to odd things occurring I would document it in a journal and keep going with my life. I've always been sensitive to these sorts of things, but this was the most activity I have ever experienced in one place, and I've never experienced it since. The last year we lived in the apartment, we got our first dog. I still have him even though my husband has now become my ex-husband. Dexter is a very intelligent, very aware dog. If someone is outside, he lets me know. Anyhow, a few months after I got him, he would stare into space, almost as if he was tracking something. I thought maybe it was just a bug, or who knows. Dogs don't see the world like the rest of us, so I didn't worry about it too much. He started to take an interest in the bathroom. He would wander in there, sniffing, and at night he would not sleep in the bed, even when we invited him. Instead, he would lay between me and the bathroom door, right on the edge, almost as if he was guarding me. We also had an extra bedroom, adjacent to our master bedroom, and I just hated going in there. I hated it. I couldn't explain it, but I just felt really unwanted in there. A few times when I went in there to clean it, I would feel what I can only describe as what felt like a psychic assault. I felt like someone was violently screaming at me, sometimes words like, get out. Other times it was just like a shrieking that reminded me of radio static, if that makes any sense. 
One evening I was alone, as usual, and things got really weird. He started growling and barking, very ferociously, snarling and snapping. The feeling of dread swept over me. Suddenly, I felt like I wasn't alone again. I whipped out my iPhone and started filming. In the video, you could hear the fear in my voice rising as I struggled to keep my voice steady while I simultaneously tried to get my dog to calm down. I ended up giving the footage to a friend that worked in video production. I wanted to see if there was anything to it. A few weeks later, my friend called me. He was flabbergasted. Are you guys trying to punk me? Are you serious right now? I assured him I wasn't trying to pull one over on him, and after a few minutes of trying to get me to tell him what he found, he finally told me he had cleaned up and enhanced the audio, and what I heard chilled me to the bone. In the audio, you can clearly hear me asking my dog, what is it, baby, what's wrong? Directly after that, you can clearly hear a deep, guttural voice mimicking my tone. Not once, but twice. And each time my dog would promptly bark in that direction, into the bathroom where I was filming, as if to respond to the thing. I had caught my first EVP. After that, things were so active that my husband and I called in a paranormal group to investigate our apartment. He couldn't ignore what was going on in our home any longer. They found nothing, other than some EMF spikes, and I was so crestfallen. I still have that file, and the video. Years later, I won't listen to it, I just can't, but I still have it, as proof that in the nearly four years we lived there, I was right. I wasn't alone. The last summer I spent in that apartment, I went to see a psychic, just for the hell of it. I just wanted some answers, and I was completely at a loss. She told me I had a demon attached to me, but for $3,000 she could get rid of it. Of course she could for a few grand. While I was laying on the table focusing my energies as I had been directed, I felt someone touch my thigh. It was like a caress from the inside out. I sat straight up and gasped. I was completely alone in the room and all the doors were shut. It was a tiny room, not much larger than a closet, and if someone had been in there with me, I would have most certainly known. It was the oddest thing. The psychic also asked me if I was having any issues in my marriage. I told her no, my marriage was great. She looked me dead in the eye and said, you will. Again, I brushed her off. What marriage doesn't have issues? As it turned out, unbeknownst to me, my husband was being unfaithful to me, and by that October we had split up. I never went back to that psychic, and I still won't put much stock in her, even though a tiny part of me wonders. As an odd aside, about six months before I moved out, I was wiping down the door frame to the extra bedroom, and I found holes that had been painted over. They lined up perfectly, and I realized that someone had, at one time, had a lock of some sort on the outside of the door, as if to keep someone or something trapped in that room. For the life of me, 
I couldn't and still can't imagine why you would have a lock like that on the outside of a bedroom door. But I don't think I want to know. That was about three years ago. But as soon as I moved out of that apartment, everything stopped. I no longer felt like I was being watched. I no longer have that feeling of dread at night, and I haven't seen that man since. It all just stopped. I know something is in that apartment, and I was just sensitive enough to be receptive to it. I even did research on the area to see if I could find out if maybe someone had died there. I did find out that a man had hung himself a few buildings over, but that was after I had already been living there. Shakespeare once said, There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I plan on getting that tattooed on me as a reminder to always keep an open mind, to search for the truth, and try to be logical about things. But to remember that sometimes there just doesn't seem to be any other explanation that is logical or scientific. A startling sound that invokes a sense of fear depending upon the time of day, or as in this case, night. The raindrops made a constant titter-patter on the glass window, with drops racing each other to reach the bottom of the sill. The cold glass had a foggy appearance on the inside surface, making it difficult to reckon the street lamps casting more shadows on the narrow street below than light. The rain had lasted a little more than a couple of hours now, showing signs of slowing down after emptying its reservoir of water held in the dark clouds hovering miles above. The sudden sound was as unexpected as it was surprising. Who was out in the rains in the dead of the night hauling objects of such weight? More importantly, it's not another floor above but the roof of the building I'm in making it all the more mysterious. I felt this urge to go and check, maybe even give a hand. I decided to go for it and check out what was going on right above my head. Had I known any building or renovation activity was scheduled by the building manager, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid and perhaps tried to sleep given the cool weather after days of sweltering heat and perspiration. I decided to take an umbrella with me even though the rain had almost died down. Perhaps it would double up as a weapon if need be. The thought of going to check the crash was a grievous mistake now when I come to think of it. I went from my living room into the kitchen to have a quick drink of water before heading up. As soon as I brought my glass up to my lips and the water made contact, Another huge thud reverberated right on top of me, and it felt like almost crashing through the ceiling, coming down on me and crushing me. This one felt bigger and heavier than the first, and was seemingly following me around. Clutching the umbrella in one hand and gasping for the staircase railing in the other, I slowly mustered enough grit to climb up and peek through the old wooden door. I did not swing open the door fully, as that made a creaking sound and I wanted to keep my element of stealth. 
peeking out, I wasn't able to see anyone or any silhouette right away, and this gave me the courage to let myself fully out onto the rooftop and look around. I pushed the door open, just enough for me to pass through, and took a step forward. The door was now just behind me, swinging slightly in the cool breeze, and I was standing on the open rooftop. The rain had fizzled down to a drizzle with intermittent flashes of lightning illuminating the open space laying around me as clear as daylight, albeit for only a moment. Taking steps in a random but cautious manner, peering down the corners and below the water tanks, I saw nothing out of the ordinary. Suddenly, the realization dawned on me. The heavy crashing sound felt like it was following me around when I was in my apartment. It came from the living room ceiling when I first heard it sitting on the sofa, and then right on top of the kitchen ceiling when I went to have some water. I look up. I apologize in advance for the length of my story, Darren. It has spanned over 21 years and so much has happened in that time. My parents built our home 21 years ago when I was only one. The property was given to us by my uncle in the 80s, but it wasn't until I was born that my parents moved me and my two older siblings out onto the 10-acre plot. It sits in the middle of Pennsylvania, in the middle of nowhere. Before we built our house, we burnt down the existing home sitting at the bottom of the property as it was dilapidated and beyond saving. So we moved in and started our life on the property. But through the years, I've come to believe there was another resident that inhabited our place long before we moved in. I can admit now that I was an odd child. Younger than normal, my fascination with ghosts and spooky stories drove me to actively seek out any true stories I could. In all honesty, I think it's because I lived alongside something dark for most of my life. When I was around five or six was the first time I remember seeing him. I say him because saying it makes him more menacing to me. At the time, I slept with my mother as my parents didn't have the foresight to build another room to accommodate three children. She had a catering job that kept her from coming home until three in the morning, and I always attempted to wait up for her. Each time I fell asleep with the lights on and I saw her in the morning. One night, however, I remember waking up. I sat up and looked around the room. It was still dark and my mom wasn't home, but as my eyes scanned the room, they found him standing at the foot of my bed by the bedroom door. He was shrouded in black and had a white, featureless face. I didn't move, and neither did he. He just stood there, watching me. Even as a child, I thought I must have been seeing wrong, so I quickly lay back down and pulled the covers over my head. That's how things went for me. I saw or heard something and explained it away as my imagination or something reasonable. As I got older, things became harder to deny. It was small things at first. 
doors rattling, dogs growling at certain areas of the house, phantom footsteps in the night. Then he started becoming bolder. We had a long hallway with an intersection of three doors at the end of it. He would pass from my brother's door on the left to my parents on the right, touching a shoulder or appearing often in the night when you woke. My parents split up and there was a lot of turmoil in the house, which is why I believe he became emboldened. Things like him feed on negativity and we were open season for him. When I was 13, the first thing I couldn't explain away happened. I was waiting for everyone to get home. My dad, his girlfriend, and my sister were all out at the bar. My brother was at a friend's house, which left me alone. I had this theory that if I wasn't alone, nothing weird would happen. That night, I brought in our two outside cats to accompany my dog and rang my friend as I finished up some dishes. If it wasn't for being on the phone with her, I would just say it was all a dream. It was 12.03 when I finished. I know because I looked at the microwave before turning around. All over the kitchen floor was what I could only describe as blood. Pools and splatters everywhere. Immediately I freaked out and assumed my dog slaughtered my cats. I tiptoed over the linoleum and grabbed my dog by his collar. He only had one spot on his left paw and it didn't even register at the time that, if it was his doing, he would have had to have drugged blood onto the carpeting he sat on. I kicked him outside and made my way to where the cats were. There was a foyer before you left the house only separated by a door from the kitchen. The door was open, but the red liquid stopped short of the door. Inside, the cats were unharmed, not a spot on them. Instead of letting panic take over, I did as my friend said and went about cleaning it. My sister walked in halfway through and stumbled past me. She was so drunk she didn't even remember it the next day. I moved out of the house that year. The weirdest part of this happening was almost exactly two years later. My dad's girlfriend had moved in with us and deteriorated into a shell of a woman before taking her own life. She shot herself in the kitchen and was found with having shut the foyer door and our lab waiting beside her body. My sister was the first to find her, but as trauma goes, her mind blocked the sight from her memory, nearly identical to what I saw two years prior. Something in me thought that that tragedy was the last of the horrible happenings in our home. I was wrong, and while nothing was as tragic, things did escalate. It wasn't just my brother and I who experienced it. In later years, our friends started seeing him too. My friend Warren, the skeptic of my friend group, pulled me aside the morning after one movie night and said, last night I saw a man standing in the room watching us. As familiar as it sounded, I brushed it off and told him, you must have saw my dad. He usually walks around to check on us before leaving for work. Warren shook his head. David and I said goodbye to your dad. This was after. I gave him a stern look, really hoping I could convince him otherwise. Did you have your glasses on? No, Warren said. You can't see three feet without them. You didn't see anything. 
Warren frowned. I know what I saw, and I saw a tall, dark man watching us all. I just figured you'd want to know. He wasn't the only one. Most of the people who spent the night at our house would tell me in the morning of the strangest dream, a man standing in the room watching them as they slept. It became too much to deny. There were many small things, such as the voice that whispered in my ear, don't fall asleep one night as I was watching a movie. But I'll save them for another time and tell the final two things that kept me from sleep. The summer of 2015 was the summer I moved home. I knew nothing had changed and had asked our church to pray over the house to get rid of whatever was inside. They gave me anointing oil and told me to pray over the house every night. I can tell you this didn't make him happy. That summer was the worst in terms of activity. Constant dread and around every corner were shadows and phantom touches. And then, the one night he took it a step further. My father had just become acquainted with Facebook, and so he would wake in the middle of the night to scroll through and watch videos. I awoke one night to what I figured was the sound of my dad watching his videos and rolled over to shut out the noise. Just then, my bed felt like someone had yanked it from the wall and shoved it back in. My entire bed shook and I was now wide awake. I peered around the room, hoping to see my cat moving about, then at least I could say the cat could have done it, but instead found an empty room. I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. The last happening, before it all just stopped, was another night, not too long after the bed-shaking incident. It was around 10.30 and I was sat on my living room floor messing with my makeup. I had my laptop open on the couch and it was just about to fall asleep. You know, the look a laptop gets when the screen goes black, like a black mirror. Well, when I leaned over to tap it awake, I stopped mid-motion. In that black mirror, I could see a man, him, standing behind me. He was only from about mid-thigh down, but he was facing me. He slowly turned to the left and took a step or two walking behind my head, and then another step or two until he was out of the black mirror's sight. I watched from the corner of my eye, waiting for someone to appear beside me, but nothing. Snapping my laptop shut, and I turned on the lights in my house, I know what I saw, and I was terrified. The next three nights I hardly slept, and if I did, it was a few spare hours during the day. Luckily, nothing went on for the rest of the night, and as I continued to pray and hope for the best, eventually all activity faded away. It's been two years, and I thought it was all gone. A few months ago, my friends were making the rounds of calling a psychic. I'm a huge skeptic and decided to put her to my own test. I forfeited her calling cost just to disprove her. During her call, she described things about my property she had no way of knowing. She'd only gotten my home phone 15 minutes before she called, and she only knew my first name. Another time, I'll write the whole weird story behind our call, but the worst of it was that she told me about our previous resident. 
It wasn't a living being, she told me after I asked her if she knew anything about what had been in the house. She told me it was an evil entity. She told me her voice smaller than before. It was dark and it fed on your family. It's gone now. You anointed your house, didn't you? Again, she'd have no way of knowing, shy of a lucky guess. When I confirmed it, she told me, good, that helped. It is dark, and if I'm tuned into it, it can find its way to me so we aren't speaking any more of it. I suggest you keep your thoughts from it too. You do not want it coming back into your home. She said a quick prayer, and we moved on. She could have been pulling the wool over my eyes, and maybe it's my desire to understand what the meaning of it all was. Either way, I believe it was dark and haunting, and the things horror movies spawn from. The past two years have been peaceful, but I don't feel that feeling of someone constantly watching me. In the last month, small things started happening again, and while I pray for the best, I worry that somehow, some way, he is back. Some time ago, before I met my now wife, she was in a relationship with a violent ex-partner. She told me of an incident that happened to her one night while she was with said partner. My wife had retired to bed and the children were sleeping in the other bedrooms. Her partner had been out all day and was extremely drunk upon his return home. Hearing him downstairs and because of his violent history, my wife was terrified. Knowing that she was in for a beating, she drew the covers up over her head and pretended to be fast asleep, hoping that he would fall asleep in a drunken state. Unfortunately, he decided it was worth waking my wife up and abusing her violently. Fearing the worst, my wife stifled her cries, hoping that the children would not wake and bear witness to his violent ways. As he lunged for her, his hands went around my wife's neck, slowly strangling her. She thought that this was the end, that he would kill her there in her bed. She then started to pray in her mind that her nan protect her from this man, and she told me that everything started to turn white. Then, just before she passed out, she saw what she described as the ghost of her nan walk up to the bed and remove her ex-partner's hands from around her neck and lay him down next to her. He fell asleep instantly. My wife got up, grabbed the kids, and made her way to her mom's house. Upon leaving the house at 3 a.m. in the morning, she noticed a butterfly in the hallway, and as she opened the door, the butterfly left with her. Her nan loved butterflies when she was alive, and my wife saw this as a sign to tell her that everything would be fine. Soon after that, she gathered enough strength and courage to leave him and start a new life, independent and free from violence. I met her soon after that, and I teach our children that they should always respect people, men and women, but never raise your fist to a woman, 
I believe that night my wife's nan, in spirit form, saved her life. Hey, weirdos! Our next Weirdo Watch Party is Friday, May 13th. That's right, we're doing a Weirdo Watch Party on the unluckiest day on the calendar. And you thought horror movies couldn't get any worse. Horror host Vincent Price, um, sorry, uh, Princeton, Princeton Vice, there you go, that's how we say it. Anyway, he brings us 1946's The Curse of the Raidens. This movie is a character based on Spring-Heeled Jack, which we've talked about here on Weird Darkness. It stars Todd Slaughter, and his acting and facial expressions are so over-the-top you can probably describe him as an early cinema B-movie version of Jim Carrey. The Weirdo Watch Party is always free, so grab your popcorn, candy, and soda and jump into the live chat, or just sit back and watch this horrorable B-movie with a fun horror host. Friday, May 13th, it's The Curse of the Raidens, presented by Vincent… no? Princeton Vice. The fun begins at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. in Hawaii, and 1 a.m. for our Greenwich Mean Time viewers. And if you don't want to wait until showtime for the fun, well, the Weirdo Watch Party page is always streaming horror hosts and B-horror movies all day long, every day of the year, on the Weirdo Watch Party page at WeirdDarkness.com. I will never be the same after what happened during that trip in the woods. Maybe talking about it or writing it down will somehow change things. I can only hope. It was a nice fall weekend coming up. My brother and I had already made plans to go camping off the Appalachian Trail near an old mining town buried deep into the woods. After some phone calls to a few friends, we had ourselves a camping trip. Now, in the past, these trips have turned out to be quite comical, to say the least. Our camping gear consists of tents, sleeping bags, and all the beer you could manage to carry on a three-mile hike up the mountain. This trip was going to be a good one. We invited the most rowdy friends that we could find, a collection of friends that was bound to deliver a good time. One of the rowdies was a co-worker of mine. When it came to drinking, he did a lot, and he was sure to bring us some entertainment. His name is Joe. We've only been working together for a couple of years, but I thought if this trip were going to be complete, we needed Joe. After I brought it up to Joe, he told me that he'd never been camping and wouldn't have any camping gear to bring along. I thought about it for a second and realized that if he didn't go, we might stand a chance of missing out on a lot of laughs. So I told him, I have a spare sleeping bag and backpack, and you can just stay in my tent. I knew that it was a good sign that Joe would go with us when he said, What about the beer? That's not a problem. We'll take two trips if we have to. We both kind of laughed about that and planned our trip. We could pack light on food and heavy on beer because we were only staying one night, Saturday to Sunday. On the way to the camp, I told Joe a little about the history of the spot where we were going to spend the night. It was once an old coal mining town with a couple thousand residents. Unfortunately for them, it was also sacred grounds for the local Indian tribe that roamed the hills. Of course, the Indians didn't allow anyone, not even their own, to reside on the sacred ground. 
so there were many massacres brought on by the Indians. There are still ancient Indian tombs spread across this land, as well as an old cemetery left by the slain settlers. This area has always been known to have a curse on it, so they say. We've been coming here for a few years and never had any problems, but it makes for good campfire tales. We finally made it to camp. As the hours went by and the night grew darker, everybody was at true form. The regular rowdies were doing their job at keeping us entertained, as was Joe. Actually, I must say Joe was leading the pack. I never would have thought that he would get that drunk. All good things do have to come to an end, and around one o'clock in the morning, they did. Joe was drunker than I've ever seen him. Unfortunately, Joe is now my problem. He's in my tent and unable to get himself into his sleeping bag. I'm now beginning to wish he were in one of the other tents. He's asking me stupid questions and making comments that make absolutely no sense. Mike, Mike, th these are my glasses and they'll be right beside me. Okay, Joe, that's fine. Now go to sleep. His eyes were glassed over and bloodshot from the many beers and whiskey shots. His speech is slurred and staggered. Mike, Mike, I, I can't see if my glasses are broke. Charlie will watch them too for me. Oh man, Joe, did you just say Charlie? You must be drunk. No Charlie here, man, just you and me. That's it. You can talk all you want. I'm going to sleep. I stuffed myself down into my mummy-style sleeping bag, pulled all the necessary ripcords, and zipped up the side. I guess they call them mummy sleeping bags because after they're all zipped up and pulled tight, you're wrapped up like a mummy with only your face sticking out, nearly impossible to get out of quickly. I've often worried about a bear attack or something like that. It'd take me a few seconds just to get an arm free to try and reach my pistol I have stuffed against the outside of my sleeping bag. Oh, Charlie will be here. He's always here at night. He watches. You know, he's my friend. Joe's voice started to slur even more as he started to doze off. Now, my imagination can run away from me at times, and I personally didn't like the talk of this Charlie character. I've always had an eerie feeling about this place because of its history and because of how dark and quiet it gets. Ironically, these are the same reasons I come here. The moonlit sky made for a perfect nightlight, giving you just enough gray contrast to bring images to shape. I also dozed off into the night, into a deep sleep. Suddenly, I was woken. Something was tapping on my shoulder. I was startled when I opened my eyes and saw a black silhouette hovering above me. Mike, like I have to take a, a piss. What the hell do you want? I was sleeping, Joe. What the hell? I yelled. I can't see. I can't, can't get out of the tent. Joe's voice was still slurred even though we'd been sleeping for a few hours. Why don't you put on your glasses? I don't know where they went. I scrambled to get out of the sleeping bag I was cocooned in. Okay, Joe. I unzipped the tent opening. This is the last time I'm going to do this. Don't wake me again. As far as I'm concerned, you could piss yourself. Sorry. Sorry. Charlie woke me up. He said I had to go piss. 
and just stared at Joe. What are you talking about? Who the fuck is Charlie? It's right there. Joe began to point to the back of the tent. In the, in the corner. My eyes lit up. I was suddenly wide awake as I quickly turned and looked in the corner. There, in the corner, was nothing but a backpack. I turned back to Joe. Joe, just go piss. I'm going to sleep. There's nothing in that corner. No, he was here. He woke me up. He said I should go piss. Joe, here's your glasses. I picked them up from the end of his sleeping bag. Let yourself back in. I'm going to sleep. I crawled back into my sleeping bag. It was much cooler now as the night grew longer. I zipped up the sides, pulled on the cords, and latched the Velcro straps over. This entire process takes a minute or two, and it's very tiresome, especially when you just want to go to sleep. I'm definitely not getting out of this bag again tonight. I'm lying in my bag and Joe is so close to the tent, he sounds like he's pissing on it. He better not be, I say quietly to myself. Outside, I can hear Joe slurring away. He's talking to himself. Half of it I can't even make out. I try to listen closer. I figure it could make for a few good laughs later on. I got up to piss, that's why. Hey, you know. Hey, there you are. I thought you were in the tent. Ah, I'm fine. He helped me out. You're always so angry, Charlie. Joe starts to come back into the tent. He makes a lot of noise getting back into his sleeping bag. I pretend I'm asleep. It's very dark in here, so wonder Joe doesn't fall right on me as drunk as he is. He's doing some more muttering the whole way in. He finally gets himself situated. I swear he's going to kick me right in the head with his feet, they're so close. I can hear the plastic tarp that the tent flooring's made of crinkling beside my ear. Charlie? Joe says. Get over here. Leave him alone now. He's, tr- he's trying to sleep. Then suddenly, I hear the pitter-patter of feet, or something that sounds like it, scurrying from beside my head down to Joe's. Many things are running through my head. Is Joe just finally getting to me? Am I hearing things? Could there be a rodent in the tent and Joe's too drunk to realize that it's not Charlie but a fucking mouse or something? Joe continues to talk to himself. What? Uh, I'm fine. He's not that bad. I listen as closely as I can. Why does he sound like he's in some kind of conversation? As I listen, I hear something. Something I can't possibly be hearing. A voice. Faint, but still a voice other than Joe's. As I listen in fright, it becomes more and more audible. Joe's not talking to himself. There's somebody there. Somebody talking to him. Where are my glasses now? I I think I lost them again. Joe says in a calm, quiet voice. The faint voice answers back. They are here, beside you, in a raspy sort of tone. Okay, I just don't want them to be stepped on, Joe says. The faint voice replies, He shouldn't be here. Terror ran down my spine. I can't be hearing what I'm hearing. 
I didn't want to move or make a sound. I tried to slowly turn my head to where I could see the end of the tent where Joe was lying. To my fright, beside Joe was a black figure, very small. It couldn't have been more than a foot or two high, very thin, maybe crouched down with a small head. It didn't look human or animal, but it was speaking, and what it was saying was terrifying. Joe continued to speak. I know, I know, I'm drunk, but I'm just... Joe's voice began to fade as if he were falling back to sleep. The creature's voice came in. Let me kill him. I couldn't move. The fear ran through me and paralyzed every muscle in my body. Even my thoughts stopped for that brief moment. Joe replied in a comical manner, Okay, Charlie. Joe giggled a little. You do that, then. I'm going to go to sleep now. As that was said, before I could move a muscle, the creature darted over to my head. The patter of its feet made it seem as though it ran over on all fours. I squeezed my eyes shut tight. My heart was racing. I tried to breathe slowly. The creature, now beside my head, spoke again. This time it wasn't so faint. It was directly in my ear. I think he is awake. I could barely hold it all back. My body began to tremble. I could now hear the creature breathing, but I couldn't feel its breath. The breathing seemed to get more intense and eventually started to sound like a faint growl, an evil growl, as if it were getting ready to attack. I was trapped within the bindings and Velcro of the mummy sleeping bag. I'd never be able to get an arm free in time to defend myself. All I could think of is how I was going to get out of this tent. The others were nearby, but by the time they would wake up, it would probably be too late. As the creature seemed to get closer to my face and louder with its breathing, suddenly all muscles that once seemed to be totally paralyzed twitched and I sat straight up in my sleeping bag and screamed out as loud as I could. I was frantically tearing and pulling at the Velcro and zippers. Finally, something gave way with a loud rip, and I was free. I tore open the tent door and went running across the camp to the next nearest tent. I quickly opened the other tent and startled my brother, who must have thought that he was being attacked himself. I leaped inside and grabbed his shotgun from the tent floor. I aimed out of the tent's opening, out into the dark forest, waiting for sign of the creature's approach. "'What the fuck's out there?' my brother asked. He looked as scared as I was without even knowing what had just happened. My jaw was trembling and I could barely speak. There fucking bear out there? Where's Joe? It's no fucking bear, I answered. Where's your damn gun? My brother asked. It's in my tent still with Joe. You let Joe handle that gun? He's liable to shoot us, he said. I haven't seen or heard the creature yet, but I find it hard to believe that I made it out of there without a scratch. I wasn't that quick on getting out of there. The creature would have had plenty of time to attack if it wanted. Mike, my brother says, what's going on? Is there something out there or not? I slowly began to lower the end of the shotgun barrel. You're not going to believe this shit, but something was in the tent with me and Joe. And Joe knows about it. It wanted to kill me and it's its not human. It's, it's some kind of creature. What? Show me. I'll show you, but you go first. I'm staying in here tonight, that's for sure. 
Okay, whatever. Let's go check this out. We climb out of the tent. It's about four o'clock in the morning and the cool air makes a low fog roll across the ground. We approach my tent very slowly. The tent's door is hanging open. It is eerily quiet inside. I thought for sure that Joe would have awakened from all of the commotion and screaming. I stayed outside while my brother stuck his head inside the tent's opening. I was expecting that Joe was dead or something was about to jump out of the tent onto my brother's head, but my brother turned to me and said, nothing in here but Joe sound asleep. Then it must be out here. It was out here earlier with Joe. I looked around the camp hoping to see it so I knew where it was. Grab my gun for me and my sleeping bag. I'm staying in your tent, I said, grasping the shotgun tight. With my gun and my sleeping bag, we walked back to my brother's tent. I had left the tent door open and the cool mist rolled inside the open flap. I stopped, dead in my tracks. What's wrong with you? My brother asked. What if the creature climbed inside while we were out here? I said. Come on, there's nothing here. He began to climb inside the tent. I wasn't going to hang around outside by myself, so I jumped inside and zipped up the door. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. While my brother dozed off, I sat straight up with gun in hand looking around the tent for the next two and a half hours waiting for daylight. Eventually, first light came and I crawled outside. The world looks different when illuminated by the sun, not so eerie. I made a fire and the smell of the smoke eventually woke everyone up, even Joe. Joe crawled out of the tent like he had just been mugged in the alley. He was very pale and very hungover. He walked over towards me and stood by the fire. What happened to the tent door? Joe asked. Are you serious? I asked him. Yeah. Why, did I do that? No, but don't you remember anything about last night? Not really. Not a whole lot. What did I do? I couldn't believe that he had no recollection of what happened last night. I was almost afraid to ask him about you-know-who, but I had to know what was going on. I know what I saw and heard. Let me ask you this, Joe. Does Charlie ring a bell? Joe mutters a little under his breath. Charlie. Charlie knows Charlie, Joe asks. And now I'm starting to get angry. I know I'm not losing it, and I wasn't that drunk. You gotta be shitting me, Joe. You know who Charlie is. You talked about him last night. He was in the tent last night. Now what the fuck? Joe started to look down and really seemed to think about it. Then suddenly his face lit up and he began to smile. Oh, okay, okay, you mean that Charlie, the invisible Charlie, you mean. I almost couldn't believe that he said that. For a moment, I didn't want it to be real. Reality seemed harder to handle than the fact that I might be going crazy. I answered back, yeah, that's what I mean. What the fuck is Charlie? He tried to kill me. Okay. Joe looked at me like he thought I was the crazy one. Charlie, if we're talking about the same Charlie, he's an imaginary friend I used to have when I was a kid. 
My wife told me I start talking to him in my sleep still occasionally and when I'm drunk sometimes. It all starts to make sense to me now, all except for the part of imaginary. He was definitely not imaginary last night, I said. Joe begins to laugh. <laughs> what are you talking about? Tell me, Joe, what does your imaginary friend look like, or should I describe him? I don't know. I guess he's just a little boy, so I could have a friend when I was little, Joe says. I don't know exactly what happened that night, but till this day I haven't camped with Joe or at the old coal mining town. No one really ever believed my story, especially not Joe, and I don't blame them. Could it have been just my imagination, or could Joe's imaginary boyhood friend have been morphed and brought to life by the same Indian curse that is supposed to haunt the land we camped on? A curse that can bring your worst fears to life. Thanks for listening to this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. You can email me anytime with your questions or comments at darren at weirddarkness.com. Darren is D-A-R-R-E-N. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, MeWe, and more, including the show's Weirdos Facebook group, on the contact social page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the website, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, click on Tell Your Story or call the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a copyright and trademark of Marlar House Productions. I'm Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Want to receive the commercial-free version of Weird Darkness every day? For just $5 per month, you can become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. As a patron, you get commercial-free episodes of Weird Darkness every day, bonus audio, and you also receive chapters of audiobooks as I narrate them, even before the authors and publishers hear them. But more than that, as a patron, you're also helping to reach people who are desperately hurting with depression and anxiety. You get the benefits of being a patron, and you also benefit others who are hurting at the same time. Become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. <laughs>